Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. Welcome to our first podcast of 2021, where we're going to be discussing some of the big Formula 1 news stories that have broken this week. First up is the news broken by Motorsport.com's F1 editor Jonathan Noble that Suzuki MotoGP team boss Davide Brivio is leaving the team to head up the rebranded Alpine F1 squad. And John is one of my guests on today's show and the other is Autosport's F1 reporter Luke Smith. But John, let's start with the Brivio news. And what does that mean now for the former Renault team? Uh, I think it's quite a smart move, actually. We got first got wind of it um, kind of two days ago. It's one of these classic F1 stories. There's a little bit of a rumour and you try and piece things together. And at no point are you ever given 100% yes because people are ducking behind either no comments or there's misinformation. But we slowly pieced it together. Uh, and we think, because it's not been officially announced yet by Alpine. Um, he's joining the team as CEO and will work alongside uh, Marcin Budkowski, who will be the new team principal, um, with Cyril Abitable moving on to a more senior role at Alpine. He's been working on the new project. Um, and when it's first announced, I think, well, why why would a Formula 1 team bring across someone from MotoGP? Because they, they seem, although they're both top-level you know, motorsport categories, they're a very different beasts in terms of the size of operations and um, the, what you need to be successful and where the challenges and the costs are. But the more you kind of dig into it, and I've been speaking to Lewis Duncan, our MotoGP um, correspondent, it's actually really, really smart. So um, Brivio kind of created and headed up and um, brought along the Suzuki MotoGP team, not the biggest team, so it's a team that helped to operate to a limited budget. Um, we got the structure there. He brought on young riders, 
um, got them winning, I think, within their second season. So 20, they came back into 15. He won first race win was 16. And last season, won the championship. So a phenomenal performance. And I think he's perfect for, as F1 goes to a cost cap era, you know, sorting the resources out, operating um, efficiencies, bringing on staff, motivating staff, all those, all those sort of bigger picture elements that I think do transpose across a MotoGP rather than being the kind of the team principal sat on the pit wall because Budkowski is perfect for that. Absolutely. Well, we'll come back maybe to, to how it will work in terms of, you know, a CEO, a Formula One team, how that will work with the with the team principal and the actual, you know, sort of managing a squad from that that point of view. But Luke, why does this why is this such a good move for Alpine? You know, I think I think Renault have copped a, a fair bit of criticism since they came back or it came back as a as a works team in, in twenty sixteen for promising a lot underachieving okay yeah it had a significantly smaller budget compared to the bigger squads but then you know maybe maybe it should have been a bit more realistic with its aims if that's what it was going to do when it when it came racing but this on paper from it from everything i've read and and, and learned in the last few days because i'll admit it i'm not a i'm not a massive i'm not massively clued up on moto gp although i did used to love it back in the day but then when it moved to bt sport and it wasn't immediately in front of me on the bbc just just managed to manage to slip it through but that was probably my error obviously an excellent championship with some excellent racing and some excellent uh, excellent talents involved but yeah why is this such a such a good uh, good move we think on paper for alpine i think it does just tick every single box that alpine is missing right now really and the, well the Renault has been missing and I think that um Brivio comes in he's got a track record of punching well above his weight and sort of working with with, with limited resources uh, as John said I mean up against the likes of likes of Honda Yamaha who obviously have been so dominant in MotoGP for so long and yet he was able to take little Suzuki basically all the way to, to the top which was a, a brilliant brilliant success he's got experience as well in terms of marrying sort of two separate teams together with the Suzuki operational team uh coming from uh, Italy and then with the actual sort of the base back in Japan as well for the manufacturer, uh, which for Renault is important as they sort of marry up the, the Enstone base in the UK and uh, what they've got in Viri where, with the engine side of things. So it's it's that kind of thing that's very, very good. Uh, he's got an excellent track record for bringing young talent through to MotoGP as well. He's always sort of been a big believer in uh, getting youth and, and fresh blood in. And Renault, their sort of academy has been a big, a big focus for them over the years. And they've still not achieved their goal of getting a young driver into Formula One as a Renault Works driver. Um, they've got uh, Guan Yu Zhou and uh, Christian Lunga, probably the two most prominent juniors on their books right now. Uh, so it's going to be interesting what he does with them. But I think it is it's just another, it's more experience. And it's, it's interesting to see so many of these teams have gone down the route of having sort of more than just one top figure in charge of the team so we've seen it at mclaren they've got um team principal andrea seidel and zep brown as a ceo role williams have got down a similar route now as well with um joss capito coming in over the winter as ceo to work with simon roberts team principal at ferrari you can see between matia bonotto and lauren meckies they're two very very experienced guys and it's it's that kind of model i think that is something more and more teams are looking towards and i think for renault well, Alpine is it's going to be. I think it's really important to get that kind of experience in from a guy who knows how to do a lot with not very much. And I think it's it's, it's a really good step for them because yeah, they haven't they haven't performed as well as I think we'd all expected. I think a few years ago, the top manufacturers were sort of looking at Renault and thinking they're sort of shaping up for the new regulations and for everything coming in the future, a bit similar to how Mercedes was for 2014, and really make that step. And getting Daniel Ricciardo was obviously a huge coup, but they got a couple of podiums in 2020, but it's not really hit the heights that it was anticipated to. So I think this is, yeah, a really canny hire. I think it's a very, very good step in the right direction. And I think that Brivio comes in knowing how to do everything 
that Renault are looking for with Alpine, uh, just in a very different formula. Uh, and I think it's going to be really interesting if his uh, experience on two wheels can transfer over to four quite nicely. And John, what will Rivio be doing as expected CEO at Alpine that, as we say, expected team principal as well, Marcin Petkowski wouldn't be doing in that role? How, how do the two work together? As, as Luke said, there's lots of examples now of it in Formula One, but what, what does it actually break down as? I would guess, because obviously we haven't yet had official confirmation and we haven't spoken to the people involved, so they may what they may be planning may be different from what we can uh, say at the moment. But I would suspect that Budkowski takes more control of the, the kind of the day-to-day operations. Um, so you're looking at, um, you know, the next races, running the race team on the race weekend, um, dealing with the drivers on a day-to-day basis, um, all that sort of thing. And then... Um, uh, Davide will be have more kind of bigger picture stuff so he can be looking at long-term planning and strategic planning for the long term and maximizing resources and increasing efficiencies and um, targeting where the you know the focus of spending should go so kind of similar to what we see maybe at McLaren with Zach Brown and Andreas Seidel Andreas is very much day-to-day you know running things on the ground um, dealing with the drivers dealing with the running the team keeping tabs on you know every single track session and Zach's much bigger picture, like kind of investment and money and sponsors and strategy and um, board management. So I suspect it will be along those those lines. And what do we think this will mean for current Renault Alpine team boss uh, Cyril Abitbo, John? You mentioned that he might be moving somewhere more sort of senior in the Alpine brand company. Why Why would that make sense for him? Why is that something that he might want to do? Is it, is it all part of a, a grand plan, as it were? Yeah, well, when uh, Luca De Mayo, the Renault CEO, came in um, July last year, he started and um, just looking at kind of where the Renault car company would go. Obviously, all car companies have taken a bit of a battering um, in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. But um, his first task was to debate about whether Renault stayed in Formula One. That was a big box tick. Um, He felt that the cost cap and the new financial models suited Renault um, so they could go forwards. And when he looked at the car company, he felt that it was best to, you know, have some key brands that, that they push forward and just to better um, give some better lines of attack for them. So his decision was that Alpine, you know, should be resurrected as a brand, as a sports car manufacturer, as a the motorsport kind of representation of the Renault Group. Um, and his decision was to put Cyril in charge of a strategic plan. So you know, it was Cyril's um, recommendation of the team name, Cyril's recommendation of. Um, you know, where they're going to go with their other motorsport activities. And I mean, from day one, once once we found out that Cyril had been put in charge, he was asked about his future as team principal. And all the time he was saying that, you know, I am committed until the end of this year, that I, um, you know, what the strategic strategies beyond that is not for me to say, but I'm committed to the end of this year. So the, the clues were there, I think, from the beginning. And, it's, and it will be a, you know, a step up for Cyril. He'll be in charge of potentially in charge of the, the whole Alpine company involvement in most sport programs. So, um, you know, probably a, a good time to, to hand over to a, a joint attack of marching and um, Brivio. Indeed. Well, um, I, I read uh, Lewis Duncan did a, did a feature about Davide Brivio and, and explaining exactly what Alpine will be getting from the, the current Suzuki or, or net. Well, he, the announcement has been made. He has left Suzuki uh, MotoGP team boss. And there was a quote in there, a very glowing quote from Valentino Rossi, who, of course, uh, they, the two of them worked together at Yamaha back at the uh, the middle of the 2000s, very successfully, of course. Um, and you know, we, we can take Rossi as a, as a motorsport legend, but Alpine have got 
actually got one on their books as well. It's Fernando Alonso. Luke, famously demanding, famously outspoken. Do you think he will will welcome this news? I thought it was quite interesting when Ricardo left that the way that Renault, when they made the announcement, didn't really make any. They didn't thank him or anything. It was a bit of a pop shot from Cyril when, when we had that. And I think we've seen on Drive to Survive a couple of times, I think Cyril has uh, maybe been, I know there's maybe sort of been a, bit, a few question marks about sort of like, what is he doing with Renault? Like how far are things going? And I think that when Alonso got announced, it was he's got a, a, a track record for the team bosses often him outlasting them and he was asked about it a few years ago and uh, he was rattled off all these lists of names uh eric bullier for i think it was just after eric bullier left mclaren and also went oh well they were all getting very old you know and uh, it was obviously just a, such a cop-out answer and a really really cheeky one so he's uh he has got a bit of a track record for that but i think it's quite interesting that Alonso is coming back as sort of this uh clearly it's different this time around you would imagine he's much older it's probably going to be his final f1 deal and brio coming in as the new guy it's not like he's it's not like Alonso's coming in to change the team to change Renault to sort of usher in the new Alpine era it's very much a, a wholesale change around where you've got Brivio you've got Bukowski coming in as well um in that role so I think it is yeah things are changing I think I think it's just I think Alonso's just got to deal with it basically I think that this is not a case of him coming in and saying look I want the team run like this or trying to be overly demanding or anything like that I think that Renault the fact that it's going to be all changed for next for this year coming I think that's uh, that's really exciting and I think it maybe will sort of maybe put a bit of a cap on Alonso in terms of how pushy he can be because uh, yeah he can't sort of point at the previous couple of years for Renault and say well we've not been performing well before I want changes because those changes are happening for this season in- Indeed, and there are also changes at uh, another squad announced this week. It's Williams, which is the next uh, big F1 news story we're going to discuss. And the announcement on Tuesday that it has expanded its technical collaboration with Mercedes to include the supply of certain transferable components from 2022. Now, skipping past the uh, rather amusing gags that this might include uh, George Russell from next season, which I thought was uh, very witty from the various people that put that out on Twitter. Um what, it, what this ultimately means is that the team's new owners have made a pretty significant decision to change the ethos of the squad in terms of doing it all by itself, really. But Luke, what exactly will Williams be getting from Mercedes from the start of next year? So it is uh, gearbox related is 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 the centre of it. So gearboxes and the sort of related hydraulic parts, which is obviously such an important thing. And um, it's sort of always been a bit strange that they've run Mercedes power units since 2014, but they've never taken the gearbox as well, which is obviously so integral to how they the engine and power unit works so it's uh it's a it's a big step definitely and i think it's something that lawrence stroll when he was um when lance was racing for the team he was quite keen to see that kind of partnership be furthered uh, but williams were always under the uh, when the family was in charge was so defiant saying no we want to retain our independence do everything ourselves and i think this has been really many years overdue so i think it's a good step for williams to be doing that i think it's a good uh, a good sign for the future i don't think it's going to go to the extent of the 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 pink mercedes that we've seen at racing point and take as as many parts as possible i think it's going to be um i I, it's just very sensible and williams they said in their announcement that ultimately gives them the chance to divert resources and funding into other areas of the car and it's just a couple of things less to worry about which makes sense so uh yeah i thought that that was really welcome news and I think everyone's kind of looked at it and gone yeah this is overdue and just makes complete sense well John I know you explained this in your column on autosport.com plus and motorsport.com prime but it's, it's a pretty significant moment in sort of Williams's history especially you know it's quite a quite a major departure from what they were doing before and it's 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 quite 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 quick into the the tenure of the new owners so why is it so significant what the decision has been made as it is 
I think because it is a, just a, it's one step beyond what the team have done in the past. There have been times where they've evaluated. I think the most recent time was 2018 into 2019. They were looking at, should we take a Mercedes gearbox, um, hydraulics, potentially rear suspension. And every time they've decided against it because of this kind of determination and pride factor of we can do everything ourselves better. But I think Formula One's moved on um, you know, quite quickly now. We see collaborations up and down the grid. Um, I think there's very few teams now aren't taking components from another another outfit. And if you're a team pushing, wanting to push forward like Williams is, if you're in a midfield in Formula 1 at the moment where one-tenth can be the difference between Q3 and uh, Q2 or Q2 and Q1, then you know producing parts yourself which are more expensive and which aren't as good. I think Williams has remained the only team not to have a full carbon casing on their gearbox for example, you're just leaving lap time on the table for no particular gain. So it's pointless having you know the best drivers in the world who are um, giving you that extra one-tenth a second if you're then leaving lap time there with car components that could be better simply by being bought elsewhere. So it is a philosophical change, but I think equally, um, you know, I use some of your comments you did in an interview with Simon Roberts. This isn't about erasing the kind of the legacy of the Williams family. It's not about moving on to something totally different. It's just a pragmatic step, a sensible step to go forwards, bring performance, but still respect the Williams family and try and retain a lot of the positives that were there before. Yeah, it's really interesting that that interview and Simon was sort of, I, th- I think the main point he was getting at was the, the sort of the feel inside the team. You know, it's, they still want to continue on the legacy and everything that the Williams family built in terms of how they all work together, make it a good place that people want to work at and and do well and succeed and, and bring the team bring the team forwards at the same time. And, and as you say, John, this does seem like a very pragmatic and sensible step and it has worked out very well for other squads. Um, Luke, you, you suggested, I think correctly, that this won't be going as far as what Racing Point sort of we're doing with Mercedes. Obviously, that is that's a completely different situation in terms of the you know the uh, the, the, the 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 copying and in inverted commas when it comes to the the pink Mercedes of of last year, the W10, and then the RP20 for Racing Point's 2020 car. Obviously, that's now Aston Martin for 2021. Other teams are doing this. So, where do you think this might sit closer? Is it more sort of similar to what Haas and Ferrari have in their relationship, or or perhaps um, what AlphaTauri and Red Bull have, which is kind of like the original one if we trace back the sort of modern history of two teams being quite closely linked yeah i would imagine uh, i think as john said is it sort of a first step i would imagine it's maybe a step back from from probably both of those i think that um i think Haas. i mean they came in and quite blatantly said look this is our model that we want to take as much as we can and i don't think williams are going down that route at all i think they've just looked at the one big area where they they could do that and it just make complete logical sense and have taken the decision to do that. So I don't think it's quite going to be to maybe the extent that, that Haas is. Um, we know that AlphaTauri, they do they do still build quite a, a good chunk of the car um, themselves at Faenza, but do take a lot of the, the, the rear suspension and rear end of, of that car from Red Bull Technologies. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's maybe sitting a little bit closer towards that. So I don't think it's going to be so much of a sort of A team and B team uh, relationship. I think it's going to be um, perhaps... Uh, yeah a bit of a different partnership but i think it's going to be interesting as john said i think that so few teams now go 
without um, any kind of link to another team. So it does make complete sense. And I think it's going to be interesting for the future as well, maybe looking a bit more long-term. Mercedes, obviously, they've had struggles in um, a couple of points uh, with uh, Esteban Ocon, most notably, a couple of years back, and almost with George Russell when there were rumours that Sergio Perez could take a seat, that they've not really got enough space to put their juniors in F1. So if this relationship, if there is scope down the line for maybe when the next Mercedes junior driver is coming through, for Mercedes to place him at Williams, I think that would be uh, really good for them as well. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, a good, it's a good tie-up for all parties. I think it just makes a, a lot of sense. Another interesting feature I thought of that chat I had with Simon Roberts, it was at the, I think it was the Sakir Grand Prix just before, as for the end of the season, the second one in Bahrain uh, last year, was that he sort of talks about there is a there is a long-term plan that they're putting together with Doralton Capital, the sort of the, the, the new owners at Williams. So is this the sort of the first step of many more big decisions? Maybe not as significant as this, but just a sort of a, a you know, a, a, a whole change of the ethos and things that are going to be implemented as time goes on? I think it's the first step, but I sense there's not what I quite like about the kind of the Simon Roberts and Doralton approach is they've not come in all guns blazing and saying, right, we can we're going to do things differently and we're going to invest this money and we're going to be winning races in two years time. And it's, you know, onwards and upwards and we're going to be the most successful team. It's been quiet, uh, you know, very calm. Um, they've not, not been much fanfare. I haven't read any kind of big shouty headline news stories from them talking about wild ambitions. Uh, I think it's a case of steady progress. And, you know, Simon's talked about a long-term game plan of five to 10 years, but not not targeted on specific results, not targeted on, you know, crazy ambitions of world championship, just making a, a success of it over five to 10 years. So, which I think, you know, is is the right approach. And as we move to this new era from 2022, where budgets will be equal, where the cost cap um, will start making a difference, will start biting the, the top teams very hard, probably not straight away, but by 23, 24, um, I think we'll see, we'll see quite a big transition in the grid. And if the cars can race closer to each other, then, you know, why not a team like Williams, you know, on a good weekend, getting a podium, getting a win over the next two to three years? Indeed, indeed. Well, we should move on to the final topic we're going to be discussing on today's show, which is sadly a negative one. And it's the news that came out at the very start of this week, almost sort of the first news story in Formula One in 2021 was a bit of a a hangover, a depressing one. I mean, everybody, I'm sure, I know I did, had a bit of a hangover at the start of 2021. Uh, But it was was the news that basically the, the expected season opener in Australia is set to be postponed, but but it's really crucial difference, not cancelled as it was outright last year. The plan is we think, to reschedule it in, later into the 2021 schedule as a result of the continuing coronavirus pandemic, the restrictions in Australia, in Victoria, the problems that are coming out in the UK with the new variant of COVID-19 that's causing such problems uh, in this country. And obviously, that's where most of the team teams and F1 itself is based. Can you just explain what the latest is regarding that situation, please? Uh, yeah, so it is looking... It, well, it is going to happen that the Australian Grand Prix will be postponed. And as you say, it's not it, with the restrictions in place uh, in Australia. They've got to have a, a two week quarantine for any personnel, anyone coming into the country, whether you're an Australian resident or not. And uh, that is that means that F1, if they realistically wanted to hold the race, everyone would have to get there about three weeks before, which obviously would just makes no logistical sense. And plus, there's concerns of the of the new variant. And obviously, with the paddock being so UK based, it's uh, yeah, it would pose a, a big risk. So it's uh, it's understandable why they're taking the decision. So it is, I think, a case of trying to see what new date they could find. And there's there's been suggestions that later in the season, how could they maybe fit everything around? And I think realistically, if they did want to get Australia in, the only thing they could do would be to bump Brazil to form a triple header with the USA and Mexico. And then they're 
that would free up a, a gap where Australia can maybe slot in as a standalone event. And that would create quite a, a hectic end to the season, dotting between um, South America, North America, Australia and the Middle East. But we shall see. Um, and yeah, and then I think obviously we're looking to what is the, the re- rescheduled start to the season. So that will be in Bahrain on uh, March 28th. The team's currently talking about when to put testing uh, because obviously it makes more sense to have testing in Bahrain than it does in Barcelona as planned. The teams are fully agreed that the testing should be in Bahrain now, but they're undecided on what dates that should be on, whether it is putting it as close to the race as possible. The sporting regulations, they say that pre-season testing must finish no later than 10 days before the start of the season. So that would point sort of around... Um, March 16th has been a real cutoff point, but some teams want it earlier than that. So we've got to see, uh, we've got testing for F2 in Bahrain. That's uh, from the 9th to the 11th of March. So F1, I guess, would fall to one side of that. And then really we're looking sort of to the early part of the season and already we've got question marks over uh, the the Chinese Grand Prix in Shanghai, which is uh, scheduled for two weeks after Bahrain, Uh, whether that can go ahead. Obviously, big, big question marks over that. Uh, It's looking possible that we may end up with two European races as rounds two and three of the season following Bahrain so that the uh, TBC rounds that was in originally Vietnam slot, that's always been uh, looking to be perhaps either Imola or the Algarve circuit in Portimao. Um, it's going to be possible that we may have both of those in as rounds two and three of the season. So that's what we're looking at. And then really it's just a case of seeing how the pandemic moves in Europe. And it, it, there are just so many question marks over what, kind of season we're going to get and it's just so hard to look ahead and say in two three four months time what it's going to be like and how it's going to be but I think yeah it's important they've taken this decision on Australia nice and early we're just waiting formal confirmation of of the postponement which is anticipated in the in the coming weeks and uh yeah it just shows that F1, I think they're already looking quite far ahead and it's not going to be a repeat of last year. And obviously we, we all got to Melbourne only to find out a couple of hours before FP1 that uh, the weekend wouldn't be happening. What is the speculation about the Chinese Grand Prix? Why is that under threat or why is there a question mark there? Is it more that there is very, very little prevalence of COVID-19 there and they don't want to risk it being brought back or is there a further issue that's at stake? Yeah, I think that's that's really the main, the main focus there. And it is that uh, other sporting events in China are still very gently being reintroduced. So I think to come back with such an international event would be, uh, that would be a bit of a a big undertaking for them really. And uh, F1, obviously they proved in, Abu Dhabi that they can sort of make the biosphere plan work in terms of getting everyone in and just and just going going in and out. But I think yeah, it is China is is maybe just wanting to be a little bit more wary about things because they have, as you say, sort of got it under so under control that to then open up the paddock to a very European and UK based sport, I think that would present a lot of risks. So uh, yeah, I think that's why there's question marks there. Um, but thankfully f1 they sort of know from last year what tracks they can try and get in how to run races at these tracks so uh it could well be also that it sort of gets rid of the headache of well do we have imola or portimao in that vietnam slot and actually have both in the end there is talk of of some of the races that appeared unexpectedly on the 2020 calendar being slotted in sort of the early season after bahrain to to mean that, that things do kick off sort of around the, the expected time and perhaps potentially avoiding the long delays of the season that we ended up having during the the first wave of the pandemic but is that is that part of a sort of a specific contingency plan that F1 has got or is it is it more a case that it's that it's you know it's 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 always it's always been working on the fact that this was a fluid calendar despite the fact it was set sort of you know at 23 races but that was just done for sort of contractual reasons in terms of the races that were were signed and sealed yeah i think when they announced the calendar i mean there were two options when they announced the calendar at the end of last year you either announce a full calendar or you announce no calendar basically there's, 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 it was a binary choice really you couldn't put 
tons of asterisks and endless complications. So it made more sense to announce a full calendar, even if you knew it wasn't really realistic to go ahead with it. So um, sure, there's going to be disruption and um, sure, it's not easy for anybody at the moment. But I think the, the big difference now from kind of nine months ago when we headed to Australia was A, Formula One's in a much better shape in understanding what's required to put races on. Um, it did a brilliant job last year in getting 17 races in. So I think, um, you know, as we went into our first lockdown, which feels like 200 years ago, but, um, you know, we were, no one was sure we'd even get one race done last year. I was certainly very sceptical. So but I think as we head into what's now lockdown seven or eight or whatever we're in, we're in um, I think we're fairly confident that we will get a, get a full calendar in this season. It may not be 23 races, but we should get 16, 17 in. Um, I think that gives the teams confidence. It gives the fans some confidence. It gives the whole sport some confidence. So, you know, sure, there's some difficult days ahead. Um, sure, it's not going to be easy for anybody to kind of go through the, the challenge in the next few weeks and for F1 to try to sort out this calendar as it goes along. But we are going to get a season this year. I think there's no doubt about that. And I think that's quite a, quite a big positive as we start the year. Indeed. Well, I just want to end on a slightly flippant note for what is a very serious situation in that I've got a, a plan that I think Formula One should implement. And I want to know whether you guys agree and also whether you can you spot all the problems with it. Uh, so first of all, I think, yeah, go to Bahrain. They want to have the race back that you're probably willing to pay for it, things like that. You know, the way that everyone was treated at the end of last year for the two races, there, absolutely fantastic in terms of getting the event happening and they've got the facilities and the resources and they're, they're very willing to do it have testing there great all makes sense um why not have two races why not repeat the gear grand prix if they're all there and there's you know be a big gap have another one makes sense now that brings me on to my next idea which i think after bahrain the next round should be silverstone because you've got the majority of the teams based in the uk there was already talk last year when uh you know when as john as you said there was speculation that it might not even get a season and that was really was feared Silverstone itself said, you know, we offered to host 12 races just to fulfill the TV contracts. I know a lot of people on Twitter got very angry about that. Don't quite know why. It's a very sensible, pragmatic suggestion. Obviously not completely, you know, it was never going to happen, but, you know, they were, everyone was willing to try anything just to get a season in. This is my idea. As most of the teams are based in the UK, you bring over the Italian teams and Pirelli and the Swiss teams for Alfa Romeo, the Swiss, uh, the Swiss guys based there for Alfa Romeo. Base them here for a little while, do three races, so do what we did for the British Grand Prix and the 70th anniversary Grand Prix, change the tyre compounds. Obviously, it's a different time of year. So it was the heat was a big factor in why both of those races, the British Grand Prix was terrible, but ended up being very exciting. 70th anniversary Grand Prix was excellent throughout, but the heat was a big factor there. Obviously, different if it was to be like sort of late March, April time or whatever. But then I think you do a third race on one of the alternative Silverstone layouts because that, that's been proved to work at the Sagir Grand Prix. It was a very short track. It worked. Silverstone's got that. You've got the national circuit. You've got the different layouts. I think, I think that works very well. Now, there are problems with this plan. I appreciate it. I appreciate, and I'm hoping you pick me up on several of them. In main, Number one being Silverstone needs fans and Formula One needs money. But what do you think? you think that could work? Uh, no, because the alternative, alternative layout thing can't work because they haven't got a layout kind of approved by the FIA. Bahrain, bizarrely, is the only F1 track on the calendar with, mul- with multiple configurations lined up. I like the, I like the idea of two in Bahrain. I liked the outer loop race, um, but I think there's no better place to kick off the European season than Imola. To be honest, you can't beat the magic of being in being at Imola um, in kind of April, kind of early late April time. 
magical place to be, great place to start the European season. Um, and I think I'd much rather keep push Silverstone, you know, around July time. By then, hopefully, you know, we're, we're seeing the, the tail end of the kind of the vaccinations and a bit of encouragement, get some fans in at Silverstone. And I think even if we can get, you know, 1,000 fans spread out across multiple grandstands at Silverstone, I think that'd be a much, much better solution for um, for Silverstone and the British Grand Prix than trying to rush three races early on in April. I do I do like the international? I've played it a bit on the F1 2020 video game. I think they've actually got it in there that you can try out on there, and it is it is quite good fun. But uh, yeah, I think that I think we just need to. Again, we're looking so many months ahead, but I think that if we can get to position in sort of July, August, that traditional British Grand Prix slot to get fans back at Silverstone, that would be magic. That'd be absolutely amazing. So I think any possibility we can have of that, I think we've got to keep that as open as possible. I think that if the flyaway races are coming sort of into doubt, I think sort of thinking of Canada, Baku, those those two races sort of that break up the the bulk of the European season. I think that really we've got to wait until then if we were to say stick Silverstone in for for two weekends again. But um, yeah, I think let's maybe wait a little bit into the summer. Um, I also, when did they run a British Grand Prix in April? Was was it two thousand? And it absolutely pissed it down. Yeah, two thousand. Oh, yeah, two thousand. Really mm. Didn't it? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and that, that that one, I I'd, I'd hadn't considered as a potential pitfall you know there's there's a lot less lot less muddy fields especially if you didn't kind of have spectators anyway but i'm just digging myself further into a hole fine i shall not send off my powerpoint presentation to stefano dominicali uh, (laughs) formula one or silverstone i shall keep that firmly under wraps Uh, but anyway nevertheless it's it's always good to end on an upbeat note in what is uh remain challenging and terrible times and we do hope everybody is uh, keeping as well as they can do so uh, we think we should end things there and just say thank you very much uh, luke and john for coming on the podcast today and of course thanks to everybody listening along just before we go we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of autosport magazine comes out on thursday and will be available on the supermarket shelves and in news agents as well as on the doormats of subscribers there'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every thursday packed full of news analysis and the usual stunning photography and of course if you want unlimited access to autosport from the comfort of your home visit autosport.com plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network.